Welcome to OK-ish, a podcast all about mental health in the modern world. I'm Mary Ellen Dance, a licensed mental health therapist, here to strip away misunderstandings about therapy and share exactly what I do in an honest way. Don't worry, you won't hear inspirational quotes or be told to spend more time doing self-care. I'm here to get to the real stuff using my own experiences as a therapist and as a really messy human being. Come and laugh at yourself with me as you learn not how to become great, but how to become okay-ish. Welcome to Okay-ish. This is a really exciting day for us over here at the podcast because we have our first ever guest. We will continue to have guests every few weeks to learn about other therapists, to learn about other people who have been in therapy, and just anyone who has worked really hard to become okay-ish. But today, I would like to introduce Dr. Amy Martinez. She is a clinical psychologist and currently a fourth-year clinical associate in training at NCP to become a certified psychoanalyst. She has a private practice in Los Angeles where she works with emerging creative adults and mental health clinicians. She is the director of clinical relations at Wright Institute Los Angeles, as well as a clinical supervisor to pre-licensed therapists. At NCP, she also sits on the board of directors, as well as the education and recruitment committees. Currently, Amy is the president of the NCP Clinical Associates Organization. Holy cow. Oh, my God. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us with all of these things that you do. Hey, thank you for having me. I didn't realize I was the first guest. That's you cool. are. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Along along with therapy, I hear that you enjoy traveling, salsa dance, yoga, and your rescue dog, Sprinkles. It's so funny. Everybody calls her Sprinkles. You're like the third person this week to call her Sprinkles. And oh it's going to be like her nickname. Her nickname, her name is Sparkles. But oh, I like Sparkles better. <laughs> but but it's so funny. Like I have, fr- I have people in my life that are just like, I'm just going to call her Sprinkles. And I'm like, that's fine. It's <laughs> totally fine. It's sort of the same thing. So. But <laughs> well, that, what what kind of dog? I mean, she's a rescue, but what do you think kind of dog is she? She's a Yorkshire Terrier. Oh, how yeah. cute! She's, I have she's I have lovely. a little dog too. Yeah, I have oh, a okay. Maltese Shih Tzu who uh, oh. he's like four pounds. Oh wow! So I have to admit to you and the listeners that Dr. Martinez lives in LA. I live in upstate New York, so we've never met in person, but I do feel like I know her because I stalk her Instagram, which (laughs) I highly recommend everyone else doing, but you do amazing things and you write lots of articles, which we'll get into, but before we get in too deep, can you explain a little bit to our listeners about what type of therapy you practice and those, you know, fancy psychoanalyst words that I used a second ago? (laughs) I will try my best. So I'm a clinical psychologist. So I'm licensed at the psychologist level, but I'm also basically getting another doctorate in psychoanalysis. So just sort of adding on to my training already. So I like to say that I practice psychodynamically. I also practice psychoanalytic psychotherapy and also psychoanalysis. And I'll try my best to like kind of in, you know, without some big sort of explanation, decipher those three things. So psychodynamic therapy is really looking at how the past informs the present, you know, how early childhood relationships, early experiences influence what's happening in your current life. And I think even 
if you would think about Freud, although he was like the father of psychoanalysis, he was very psychodynamic as well. So psychoanalysis is psychodynamic. Psychoanalytic psychotherapy is sort of an offshoot of psychoanalysis, and it really just means less frequency, but still thinking from a psychoanalytic lens. And when I say psychoanalytic, I mean sort of listening with a third ear and listening to things that might be out of awareness that could be influencing what's happening in the therapy, um, which then I think can translate to things that might be impacting a patient's life. And it's a very sort of nuanced way of listening and trying to understand through you know, the, the symbols that the patient is discussing. You know, I, I definitely work with dreams often. I think that's a fascinating way to understand the struggles and the conflicts people go through because, we, you know, we all have them. It's a very human experience. And I guess, so the last thing is psychoanalysis. I, I would say the biggest difference with psychoanalysis is the frequency. It, and there have been arguments about this. Some would say psychoanalysis can be done one time per week. Some people could say, it's only, you know, it's only analysis if it's four or five times per week. But there's been a lot of changes and psychoanalysis has become a lot more contemporary. And now it, it tends to be, people would say, um, you know, a therapy that's three times or more per week would be considered more of an analysis if you're also like doing it from the guise of a psychoanalytic perspective. And psychoanalytic psychotherapy would be one to two times per week. So it just depends on what people, you know, have time for. And, you know, it's a big commitment emotionally and it can be financially and, you know, with insurance and all of that. And there's so much work trying to get insurance to cover mental health and the way that, you know, medical, medical issues are covered. And I think, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there so that more and more people can get the open-ended therapy that they need, because therapy should not have to be such a, a, a privilege. It should be able to be accessible to all. And Freud actually developed psychoanalysis. One of the things that he wanted is that it was to be a social service that was available to all, that people could go four times per week and it would be more accessible. You know, in certain countries like Argentina, people, like everyone's in analysis, like the taxi drivers are in analysis, that everybody has an opportunity and it's just sort of an everyday experience. So it's interesting to see how it looks in different countries and different cultures too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so on here, thank you for explaining the difference between those. And on here, I've talked a little bit about Freud and different things. And I'm going ah. to get a little bit more into the difference between, you know, different types of theoretical models and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But what you just described sounds a little scary, right? Thinking about our listeners, that can sound a little bit like what we see in the movies about an old man with a white beard and, you know, you laying on a chaise lounge and you analyzing their dreams. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> so I guess, could you speak to that a little bit that sometimes it's very scary for people and what that's like? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I agree. I think that so many people kind of poo-poo psychoanalysis because it's like, oh, I don't want to you know, talk to some old white dude who's not going to, who's just going to, you know, tell me, oh, that's a defense mechanism and I should change it. You know, there's been, I think, a very, very big shift in psychoanalysis lately that hasn't really quite gotten into the mainstream. 
but yes, I want to go back to what you said about it being scary. And, you know, really, I would say that moving into a psychoanalysis is something that occurs over time. I mean, with any therapy, you want to develop trust with the therapist and that that is a very personal part of the therapeutic relationship. And, you know, often people start in, I don't know, CBT therapy. I mean, and then sort of move into like, okay, I did this kind of therapy. Now I want to try this kind. Now I want to try this kind. And it's not to say that psychoanalysis doesn't incorporate cognitive behavioral therapy or different modes. Um, it's mostly just like the lens that the therapist is looking through and how they're understanding what the patient is experiencing. But more and more, it's the, the field of psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic therapists is becoming way more diverse, which is really, really cool to see. That's fantastic. And mm -hmm. I'm so glad you're here to explain this because a lot of what we talk about on here is, you know, I did a whole episode about how to find a therapist. Mm -hmm. And so often people who don't know what this means go on to psychology today and they're like, okay, well, this therapist is psychodynamic. What does that mean? They're going to blame my mother for everything. <laughs> <laughs> and so being able to kind of see the, see the difference and see the integration of mm -hmm. all of that. You know, and right. I mean, like we all have early caregivers and they always influence. But, you know, I think the interesting piece of psychodynamic and psychoanalytic work is that it's more sort of like the symbolic mother or like the, 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 the mother that's inside of you. It's both the person and the experience of which are can be two very different things, which is something interesting. But, you know, one of the things that I think when you're talking about like people going to psychology today and try to find and don't really understand, there are, you know, there's psychoanalytic institutes all across the country that provide, they have clinics that provide low fee psychoanalytic therapy and psychoanalysis. You know, people can get really, really good treatment for I mean, very, very minimal, minimal fees um, with people who are training to become analysts. And, and I don't think that people know that. The American Psychoanalytic Association has, you know, a directory of all of the institutes and, you know, places people can find analysts who are in training or those who are more seasoned. But there's, there's a lot, there are a lot of options. That's incredible. And mm -hmm. thank you for referring to the therapeutic relationship and how just because the way you think about and theorize patients or clients may be different from the next therapist does not mean that, you know, the first time they come in, they have any reason to be afraid or nervous because it is about that therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I'm working with early clinicians and they're calling new clients for the first time or they're trying to, it's like, you know, when, when, when people are doing an intake or something, you've got to remember like how scary it was to call a stranger for the first time <laughs> and, and try to explain to them what you're going through. I, it's really, it's a difficult thing and it takes a lot of courage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, how did you, how did you end up in the field? So I was a professional dancer and choreographer before I was a psychologist. And I was sort of at a crossroads in my life. And I wasn't sure what I really wanted to do. But I had always been very curious about 
the mind and like relationships and sort of trying to understand myself. And I think I read like, I was thinking about this the other day because it like popped up on an Instagram post that I was reading like, I think I read in my early 20s, like The Power of Now, which is, you know, it's mindful, but it's also very CBT sort of like, oh, I can, I can sort of, I can stop my thoughts. And I thought, oh gosh, that's so interesting. And I just became more and more curious. And I wanted to do something that was creative also. Like, sure, I wasn't choreographing as much and it wasn't something I was doing as a profession. But I often think of, you know, therapy and working with the, every therapeutic relationship is different and every treatment is different. So it's very much like, you know, a choreography or a dance of the mind in between the therapist and the patient or client. So I think that's one of the reasons that I was attracted to it. And I often think, you know, so many people who have been in creative industries end up being therapists, you know, singers, dancers, musicians, and also, which is also interesting, a lot of lawyers. <laughs> well, I love that you said that because I say all the time, yes, psychology is a, is a science, is a social science, but it's so much an art. It's so- uh-huh. It's both. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is really fantastic. And you still salsa dance. So you still do dance somehow. I do. I haven't <laughs> been doing it as much because I haven't been, you know, traveling really since all of this, but I hope to, to get back to it. I hope That's to. incredible. Mm-hmm. That is quite the career change. I love mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Now, here's my biggest, biggest question. And this is okay. actually my whole idea for starting this podcast in the first place was stemmed from all the stigma around mental health therapy. And mm-hmm. that it's not as scary as it sounds. And I would just love to hear, you've talked about it a little bit with the ideas around psychoanalysis, but I'd love to hear about what you think about the stigmas around therapy, around mental health, how that's getting better, how it's not getting better in some cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a great topic. It's also a complicated one because you know I think that there's the problem of stigma and there's also the problem of access. And those, you know, those can look different for different communities and different populations. I think, you know, the stigma piece is so, is hard because it's like trying to, to help people recognize that therapy isn't just for when you're in a crisis, mm-hmm. that therapy is something to sort of you know, support you when things are going well also, and that it can kind of keep your emotional bank filled up. (laughs) That having a, you know, a consistent supportive relationship that's really about you is very, it's not like any other relationship in your life. You know, everybody has to be taking care of others, taking care of children, taking care of partners, taking care of pets, taking care of employees. And so, uh, you know, everybody needs the space to be able to be cared for because no matter how I think competent and confident and able and resilient a person might be, every everyone has needs and everyone struggles. And, you know, it's really just about the human experience. And the problems I see are a big part of it is the access to mental health services. Oftentimes, you know, insurance is a problem because insurance often dictates how how much therapy someone can get, which 
is connected, I think, in some ways to evidence-based treatments that say, you know, reduction of symptoms and you're supposed to do this by this many sessions or this by this many sessions. And, you know, people aren't, people aren't checklists. People aren't the DSM. I mean, the DSM can describe certain things, but it doesn't really encompass the full person. And I think that there's been so much emphasis on evidence-based therapy being the end-all be-all, but really like, how do you actually measure that? (laughs) You know, that there's, so there's that piece of it. And then if you think culturally about the stigmas associated based on the community that you're from, of course, African-American and Black communities are struggling to have access and to find the resources especially with everything that's going on. I mean, it's always been going on, but the discussions about racism and inequality, and it's waking up a lot of therapists to understanding, you know, the power dynamics within therapy and Mm -hmm. how, you know, the therapeutic relationship can be repeating perhaps a, a traumatic experience for people. And I'm not just saying Black therapists and Black clinicians and Black clients, but also people of color, any marginalized community, really, I think, clinicians have to be very, very mindful and sensitive and to really be looking at these issues within themselves to understand how these issues are being played out in the therapeutic relationship. Because I think this sort of systemic piece of of racism and injustice, I think therapists have a very, very important role to play in how this is how this is addressed and how healing can happen and how, gosh, hopefully we can have a more, (laughs) you know, equitable and I don't, you know, I don't even know how to necessarily say it just because there's so much going on right now. (laughs) Obviously we're like less than a month from the, from the election. And I think that as mental health clinicians, we have a very, very important role to play in everything that's happening systemically and institutionally. I'm part of a, a group of clinicians that's headed by a couple of colleagues of mine, Adobe and Jai and Ellie Diamond. Um, it's called Disrupt the Silence. And it's for clinicians in academia and in clinical settings who are trying to disrupt the silence within academics and institutions to try to understand like how issues and maybe even like, you know, how projective tests or personality assessments or things like that, how problems of race and how, like, for example, there is the Boston naming test. Mm -hmm. And one of my colleagues who's a part of this, Disrupt the Silence, she experienced, she had to do an assessment with um, a patient where he had to look at a bunch of, he had to basically that he was shown pictures and he had to, to, to say his associations. And one of the pictures was, was a noose and that that was traumatizing to the patient. Mm. And so one of the things, one of our first things that we're trying to do is to you know, identify these, these problematic assessments and instruments that are being used mm and bringing it to the attention of the different organizations to try to make change within our own institutions and in the psychology field at large. It's going to take a long time, but we're, you know, we're looking for more people. We haven't even launched yet. So 
that's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. So follow Disrupt the Silence on Instagram and and also, you know, check out the website and become part of our the conversation. We have a private like forum so people can really start to understand and talk about these issues and maybe what they've experienced themselves or things that have happened in their treatments or within, you know, their supervisory relationships because that's really where the change starts. And so, you know, I'm excited to be part of this group and it's, it's a lot of work and it's really difficult, but we're all, we're all trying. That's all we can do is show up and try and learn. That is incredible to overcome some of the barriers that people feel about Mm -hmm. going to therapy when there are so many things going on in the world that it's important to Mm -hmm. get support. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. I'm so Mm -hmm. glad that you're starting that. Yeah. Thank you. Now, I read an article that you wrote recently about social media, how Instagram can actually be really helpful with mental health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about your views on that? Sure. Um, I think you're speaking about the psychology today. Yes. Yep. The psychology today. So I started my Instagram in my doctoral internship and I just was sort of curious, like there weren't a lot of voices back then. I mean, this was probably like five or six years ago online, like talking about psychoanalysis. I was, you know, trying to figure out a way to talk about what I was learning in my internship and in my fellowship, how to talk about it in a way that didn't sound so like jargony and felt more relatable. And Mm -hmm. I had some really incredible uh, mentors and supervisors who supported me in that. And so now that I'm in psychoanalytic training, like really thinking about Instagram as a way to sort of understand how a person you know, relates to themselves and to the world. And that's very, obviously, it's very individual. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I like to think of it as a counter transference and transference tool, like how someone is engaging in Instagram could be very informative about how they relate to, to people or how they relate to the therapy. And without saying too much more, I think that uh, it could be if a therapist is open, you know, rather than just saying, we're in this relationship and you don't follow my social media and you, you you can't do this and you can't do that. That I think that it can really cut off an opportunity to understand something about a person that they might not be able to talk about or don't have awareness of yet. Absolutely. And I love that take on it because so often I get frustrated with social media because people can perceive things differently and sometimes that can contribute to negative stigmas. But I love the take on how on how it can be really, really positive and share good information and resources and, and destigmatize things mm-hmm. and tell a person about themselves. I love mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that. So I have one last question for you. As a psychologist, what is like, if you could pick one thing that you wish your clients or other people in therapy, or maybe people who are listening to this who have never even thought about going to therapy, Mm -hmm. if you could tell them one thing about mental health, going to therapy, the process, what do you think that would be? Okay. Can I have to say, can I say two things? Yeah. I I, I (laughs) will allow that. (laughs) Sometimes we have to do things scared, whether that means being scared to reach out or whether that means being scared to maybe have a difficult conversation with a therapist saying, hey, I didn't like what you just said. I didn't like what you said. Or, you know, a couple of weeks go by and it's like, I'm scared to bring this up, but um, this didn't make me feel good. 
that a skilled clinician, you know, will be able to to take that in and and sit with it and talk with you about what that means and hopefully something can be understood and something can be resolved and that it can be an opportunity, I think, to maybe do something that's reparative because often conflict is, conflict's a part of life and difference is a part of life. And, you know, a good therapist who is trained to listen and understand can be helpful and sort of a gentle guide, I think, with these challenges. And hopefully through the process, you, you know, this can, along with everything else, lead to a more fulfilling relationships and life in general. And that, you know, you don't always have to like or agree with your therapist. Absolutely. Because I think people, you, you know, you are the expert on you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean just about the facts in your life. I mean, <laughs> somebody, if you bring yourself fully to a therapist that you trust, then, you know, maybe things won't seem so scary. <laughs> I am so glad that you said all of that because not only is it true, but I have said some of those things on this podcast as well about do things that are scary and you're the expert on you, not the therapist. And so mm-hmm. it shows that what I'm saying is is true. <laughs> There's I no therapist that, saying it. <laughs> this, oh, good. I'm glad. I hope I you feel validated. <laughs> I do. I do. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we need to do things scared. And then you said mm-hmm. you had one more thing. I think I said the other things in... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I said it all. All in one breath. Yeah. Now, um, if people want to find you, um, if people are interested in learning more about you, learning more about psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. I know on Instagram you are Dr. Amy Martinez. Is mm-hmm. there another place that I should send people? I would say, you know, the American Psychoanalytic Association. They have an Instagram. They also have a website. It has a lot of resources as well. I have a I have a Twitter. I'm not really a huge Twitter person, but I'm, it's one of those things. It's like, yep, do it. Even if you're not good at it, that's okay. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I have some of the, you know, articles that I've contributed to on my website. It was just in a Huffington Post article that came out yesterday about debate anxiety. Oh my <laughs> gosh. I'm going to go read that. I think yeah. we'll do that. <laughs> yeah. They cut out the piece that was a little more analytic, but that's okay. I was just happy to be featured. So yeah, that's incredible. That's cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on here. It's great to talk to you to learn about these things. And good luck with all of these in- endeavors that you're doing all of your, you know, 17,000 things that you're working <laughs> on, which is awesome. And I hope for our listeners that this conversation with Dr. Martinez today helps to give us different views, different ideas on way to go out and em- embrace being okay-ish. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. Disclaimer, this podcast is produced for your universal listening pleasure. Any statements shared during our program are opinions and experiences of our team and guests. If you disagree with any content presented herein, please find another show before submitting nasty grams. This is a positive vibes only platform. If you love our show and want to connect, share your experiences, or know someone who we should interview on future episodes, please don't hesitate to get in touch through our website or Instagram. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. 
To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.